All right, I need to help you get a picture in your head this morning. Who can picture being the child shuffled through the stores on the errands leading up to Christmas? Now, I know many of us shop online now, so like Amazon takes care of the hustle of getting it to your door, but maybe you gotta look back to the Christmas movies you've watched and put yourself there. Mentally picture it, your first grade self with your parent or guardian going through the stores on the Saturday before Christmas. (laughs) Some people are like, ain't no way I am going to the stores on the Saturday before Christmas. But put yourself there. What do you feel? What do you see? What do you experience? I picture three shopping bags on one of my mom's arms and me in tow with the other, probably attached to another sibling that I'm told to not let go of. Things are tight, people are intense, the list is long, and the time is ticking. And because you're on your mom's mission, you're squeezing past all the other carts heaped with stuff, you've avoided the aisles because they're too packed with stuff, and so we we weave through the clothing racks at Kohl's because we want to avoid the traffic jam. We can't see where we're going, little first grade self. I mean, I'm not that tall to begin with, so you know, I was down there. And all that you can see with mom's hand and the bags behind you and trying to dodge them as she's being the lead blocker working through all these aisles, the gauntlets of other moms out there, and God help the dads that just got started that day. And when you had to be in the aisles, your nose was about at the waist high of things that were, I don't know, sometimes ripe. You know, rich food from last night's work Christmas party making it through all the other shoppers, if you know what I mean. You're pretty much done. And there's still three stores to go from what she's said. Who knows how many more presents to buy. It's claustrophobic. You asked questions. She says, just stay with me. I can't explain right now. Just hold on to my hand and don't let go of your sister. And then you get a glimpse of the toy aisle where you'd like to stop along the way. And mom leads you back to the kitchen section or worse, to the women's underwear. But... Uh, Can I just go over there for a sec, Mom? No, not right now. There will be plenty for you to look at and enjoy on Christmas. Let's go this way. But you think, what way? I can't see past the adults, the carts, the displays, just the back of your mom. At the register, you finally clench a glimpse of a window. Natural light away from the artificial glow of the department store, and it looks so good. Oh, you can almost taste the fresh air already, some space. But no, back through the store, back into the mall, and on to the next store at mom's direction, not yours. You see the play place along the way on your way to get there. Can I? know? You smell the Cinnabons. Mom, what about, uh uh-uh? You see a friend and plead, can we? No, not today, not now. And your little first grade self just wants to sit down and cry. If you can picture this, you've got a pretty good picture of what we can often expect life to be like when we're journeying with Jesus and turning to him in prayer. Our will versus his will. It can often be a place of frustration especially when the overwhelm of life's burdens surrounds us like carts heaped at coals the weekend before Christmas. When we're weary and waiting for illness to relent, 
for relationships to rekindle, for opportunities. Man, if they could just open up. Lord, Lord, I want more of that, more of this. When we're bearing the results of another's sins, their frustration, their unforgiveness, their anger, their blindness to the unrest they create, we plead, Lord, deliver me. And we have to live with results of our own sins, what we wish we could take back. What man, if we could just do it, we would do it again differently. The unhealthy habits or patterns that we return to, even though we know we won't like where they lead, we lament, Lord, create in me a clean heart. And the time keeps on ticking. And the list is long of what you'd like different. And you're struggling to hold on to hope that it could even change and find yourself looking at the light in the distance that looks so good and turn to your father in prayer and say, can we do this instead? I see the light over there. Can I go that way? But God, I don't think I can keep going. And you just keep seeing and hearing, no, not today, not now. And you want to just sit down and cry. It's common to look at the darkness that surrounds or the dark valleys that are ahead and think, I can't. I don't want to. Even Jesus had this wrestle with the Father, his will versus the Father's will. In the school of the Garden of Gethsemane, the lesson was taught as he got down in prayers, sweat, tears, sweat sweat drops of blood, I'm sure weeped many a tear and said, Father, let this cup pass from me as he looked ahead to the crucifixion, to the whipping, to the beating, to the suffering and the suffocation and the dying. Let this be taken from me. Lord, I, I wish there was another way. But in the end, he relinquished his will and said, not my will, but yours be done. As followers of Jesus, we can expect our paths to increasingly look like his. So it's no wonder that we find ourselves in similar places. A valley of the darkness of difficulty ahead and you just want to sit down and cry. Our will versus God's will. And friends, can I just say for a second, if you don't find your will clashing with his, you might not be taking his words seriously enough or taking enough time to address how it applies to your life because this is the life of following Jesus. Part of being a follower of Jesus is learning to pray as John Bailey aptly penned in his diary of private prayer. When you call me to go through a dark valley, do not let me persuade myself that I know a way around. 
for this wrestle is an essential part of growing and deepening our relationship with him. For if our wills led to peace and provision and joy, we wouldn't need him. The deepest peace and the most solid hope is found when we release, relinquish our will and honestly desire your will be done. But how can you get there? How do you move in this direction? Not just sit down and cry. Well, let's go back to our Christmas shopping analogy. In a word, trust. Trust that the hand that holds yours and the voice that leads you is trustworthy. Trust that he really is good and really is going to provide for you better than you would for you. Trust that if he would audibly answer you, he would say, daughter, son, even when things don't look good, I am good, and there is good prepared for you. Trust that in his will is our peace. It sounds pretty good to be there, but I don't know about you, but I'm a long way from there. But thankfully, to start moving in this direction, we don't need to somehow conjure this trust out of thin air. God reveals himself through the prophet Isaiah, and we learn that we have more than just his word to help us grow in such a trust that brings such a peace. In fact, there will be a person. In our final week in this series on Isaiah, we're going to be in Isaiah 53. So I encourage you to leave the hymnal there and get out the one that says Holy Bible if you didn't bring yours along with you. But either way, get out the scriptures and turn to Isaiah chapter 53, starting at verse 1. We'll work our way through the whole of that text in a little while there, so I'll let you have a chance to open up to Isaiah 53, starting at verse 1. A little context as you get there. The people of Israel that are the ones to whom this is addressed are in exile as he speaks to them. Exile means that they've been pulled out of the land that they knew to be their homeland and now have been put into another land and imprisoned there, stuck there in a foreign nation. They are in exile because they wanted their will to be done rather than his. And they just sat down and insisted and he let them go their way for a time. But in time, they also saw their error and they prayed and they waited for him to deliver them, to bring freedom, to bring relief to them. They are weary in waiting. And to this, Isaiah is empowered by the Holy Spirit to speak the words of the Lord to them. And in these words, Isaiah has already alluded earlier on before chapter 53 that God would show that he is good, that there is a servant that's been talked about, starting in about Isaiah 40, and a, a servant that would bring about this goodness. They refer to this servant in Isaiah 53, when we read that, as the arm of the Lord. This is the one that's to come. And for the past four chapters leading up to 53, God has communicated through Isaiah his insistence. He will restore them. He will bring relief. He is going to fix it. As Pastor Brian has laid out in this series uh, the past three weeks, he will act on behalf of those who wait for him. 
He will embrace them with the comfort of, of his hug, with embrace that he is coming. The dawn is almost here where the darkness will get pushed away as the light of the world comes. And now in Isaiah 53, he tells them what this servant, this arm of the Lord will look like so they know who to look for when it arrives so that they can increasingly trust that even when things don't look good, God is good and has good things prepared for us. So Isaiah 53, we're going to work our way through the whole of it here. Verse 1, who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This question uh, is like, hey, I'm going to tell you all of these things, but man, you're not going to believe it. It's, it's, who is even going to trust these words as we lay them out before you? He says, but look, look for one like this. Verse 2, he grew up like a tender shoot like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So you're looking for one that doesn't look all that desirable. Uh, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not." Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was laid upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. This is the one they're looking for. This, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. They're saying he's, his, his, his family line will not continue because it seems he's been cut off forever. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, verse 9, and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And if you've got your own Bible with you, verse 10 is the one I'd love for you to underline, highlight, put a star next to. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see offspring and prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And after the suffering of his soul, He will see the light of life and be satisfied. When these words were given 2,700 years ago, the fulfillment was yet a mystery. They knew of this tender shoot that was to come. This would carry their burdens who, who they wouldn't recognize, but yet would carry the sins of the world. It would be like this scapegoat that carries their sins and so that they didn't have to carry them for themselves. One who the Lord would crush, but they said, who is this? When will this happen? How does this work? But when we read it, we can't help but see it is Jesus. Jesus. 
Jesus, the one whom God sent, the servant, the arm of the Lord, the baby born in Bethlehem certainly looked more like a tender shoot rather than the big oak that you might expect God to be as he comes into the world. A tiny little sapling, this baby born in Bethlehem. And yet he took up our infirmities, our weaknesses. Maybe most of all today to know that he he took up our failures to trust in him in so many times, in so many ways. He carried the sorrows and our disappointments in ourselves, our frustration with God's providing, with his timing, our asserting of our wills over his, he's carried that too. And those hands that now hold ours were pierced for our transgressions. That voice that now leads us, it was silent as he lived up to his word. Not my will, but yours be done. And the Lord laid on him the punishment that was due to us. He was and is the scapegoat for our sins. And as hard as that picture is to match with our usual picture of God, that verse 10 that I had you star or underline, it was his will to crush his son, to cause him to suffer. Uh, The father essentially was saying to Jesus, in that garden of Gethsemane, even though things don't look good, I am good, and you can trust that I have good things prepared for you. What's best is not to go around this dark valley, but rather to go through it. Why? Why was it his will to crush his son? How is that good? It's good for you and me. It makes his life a guilt offering, an offering acceptable to God so that Jesus could bring life to the whole world, to you and to me. And in the end, this indeed is good for Jesus because it is his greatest joy that through his life you would have life that through his life, life would be given to the whole of the world. After the suffering of his soul, he did see the light of life and was satisfied. The point is this, God is unquestionably good because he willingly subjected Jesus to carry the sin of the world in a way that permits you and all of the world to come home to him. This is the truth you need as you find yourself, your will colliding with his, so that you can release your will, not haphazardly, but with hope, on the basis of not just a promise, but on on a person, the basis of Jesus' very life that was given to satisfy your unpaid death. And looking at that, we can't help but agree, even when things don't look good, God is good. And I can trust that he has good things prepared for me. Then when life's valleys and darkness has you feeling like a first grader in the middle of the aisles of Coles on the Saturday before Christmas, you get to fearlessly pray and really mean it. Lord, when you call me to go through a dark valley, do not let me persuade myself that I know a way around it. If it's your will, lead me through it.
A few last things as we wrap up today. As Richard Foster says in his book, Prayer, you can expect that when God crushes you, too, by limiting your will to his and not yours, when you're still waiting for what you'd like, not going the direction that you'd prefer, not yet or or even ever having what you see in the distance or what others have that you think looks good. In that surrendering of to his will, he will provide you the priceless treasure of transformation. The priceless treasure of transformation to enable you to live in the truth that Paul declares in Galatians chapter two. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. For in that process, your will is crucified for your good and for the good of those around you. For when we, by God's enabling spirit, relinquish our will in favor of his, when we let our wills be crushed, crucified, when we release them in hope, we can expect to increasingly be freed. Freed from all the self-sins, self-sufficiency, self-pity, self-hatred, self-exaltation, self-indulgence, self-absorption, and so many more. The loss of being led through that dark valley rather than transported from it or thinking you know a way around it. The loss of being in a place of ongoing want leads to freedom for you and blessings to others. Freedom from the burden of always having to have things your way. It frees us to want to care for others, to genuinely put other people's needs first, to joyfully and freely give. It is a lifetime of being in this process, little by little, that God does this transformation, not like a tornado, but like a grain of sand in an oyster not destroying our wills, but transforming them with the result that new graces emerge, a new ability to cast all our care upon God, new joy at the successes of others, new hope, and a God who is good. And more and more we freely will what God wills. Remember, that hand that holds you and that voice that leads you is good and will not only bring good for you, but through you to the world just like he did through Jesus. So don't avoid the valleys that God calls you to go through. They're not just for your good, but for good God's goodness to go through you to a world that needs this hope and his goodness too. May the peace of God that surpasses all human understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen.